Welcome to the Liquid Church Podcast, a place where you can hear the timeless truth of God's Word in a way that's culturally relevant and cutting edge. We hope you'll discover how God's story relates to your own and that you will leave feeling encouraged. Thanks for joining us today and enjoy the message. Hey, Barbie. Can I come to your house tonight? Sure. This is the best day ever. It is the best day ever. So is yesterday, and so is tomorrow, and every day from now until forever. You guys ever think about dying? Why? Why? How about because this is the most important thing that ever happened in the history of the world? I work here. Will ensure a peace mankind has never seen. Until somebody builds a bigger one. You're passing judgment on people you know nothing about. His house has a very good vibe. Stop the vehicle, Sergeant. We don't want to go down this road. You're out of your bounds, Ahmed. You're here to translate. Actually, I'm here to interpret. Wow, this is the real world. <laughs> What's going on? Why are these men looking at me? Yeah, they're also staring at me. One ending. Get that for me! Ideas live forever. It was the, the biggest purchase I had ever made. It's a gift for my wife. We'd been saving up. I'd been saving up secretly for over a year so that I could surprise her. We're only a couple years in our marriage, so we're both broke college students. Um, nice things for us are, are like few and far between, but I knew she was going to love it. Uh, she went out of town for the weekend, and that's when I saw my opportunity. I, I headed straight to the car dealership, and, and I brought home this bad boy right here. Um, I know, I know some of you guys are pretty overwhelmed by the quality of this beautiful piece of manly machinery standing right in front of you. Though it be small, it be mighty, because this is no ordinary Chevy Spark. This is the 2013 Chevy Spark EV electric vehicle. Uh, This is Chevrolet's very first release electric vehicle. It boasts a best-in-class 80-mile range. That's a long way. You can go pretty far, almost like as far as a golf cart can go. 140 horsepower, 0 to 60 in 7.2 seconds. It's made for the racetrack, guys. Um, But again, don't be judging too much. Uh, We had just moved back to California. I was trying my best to kind of like blend in with the environmental people. Um, So the car's bought. I'm proud. I'm excited to share with my wife. Casey's gone away for the weekend to her father's house. And um, can you guess how far away it is? 80 miles, exactly. Clearly, uh, it's just meant to be. So I load up the car with our two dogs. I start my drive across the Mojave Desert to deliver the prized possession. Um, As I'm driving, it's the middle of summer heat, 120 degrees outside, but I didn't have a single care in the world. I've got the AC blasting my new car smells like 
new car, which is like the best smell in the whole world. And all I can think about is how happy Casey is going to be to receive this gift as I make the 80-mile trek through the desert. The only thing I was not prepared for, though, was that EV technology was brand new. Uh, if you haven't ever driven an electric vehicle before, range anxiety is real. Uh, and apparently 80 miles is your range under perfect conditions going downhill with a tailwind behind you, not in 120 degree heat up and down through the California mountains. Uh, and so pretty quickly my map is showing 60 miles left, but my range indicator on the car is showing I'm only going to get 40. So I'm starting to get nervous that I'm not going to make it, but I keep pushing on just hopeful that I'll regain some ground along the way. Uh, a few minutes later, I'm now showing 50 miles away, but only 28 miles of range. And uh, remember, this is 10 years ago, so there's not charging stations to hit. I'm on my own. So I make a couple of drastic decisions to conserve energy. The first thing that I did is I turned off the radio, but that wasn't enough. Um, the next decision I would go on to regret, because what I ended up doing was turning off the air conditioning. So the 120-degree heat immediately begins pummeling my car. I'm, I'm dying of the heat, but managing, knowing that it's all going to be worthwhile when I gave Casey her gift. And that's when I look in the back seat to see the dogs that are sitting back there, and they are distraught because they've lived their entire lives in AC, and they don't know what to do. And I'm not kidding you. Right as I look back, I start to hear this sound coming from the back seat, and it goes like this. Ah, ah, ah. And sure enough, all over my brand new leather seats, there's throw up everywhere. Gone is the, the perfect dream of Kid and Casey, this, this brand new car. And instead, we are in a survival situation. Uh, to, to make matters worse, I know that I can't stop to clean up what's gone on in the back because I don't have enough miles to stop and get going again. So I do my best. I, I reach to the back and put my dog up onto the front seat so that he doesn't step in his throw up. And many of you guys are thinking, this is about as bad as it can get. But no, 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 it's going to get far, far worse because my dog wasn't done. About five minutes later, I look over to my now co-pilot and we make eye contact and he's looking at me and I'm looking at him and he's looking at me saying like, I'm so, so sorry for what I'm about to do. And I'm looking at him thinking, what are you about to do? And that's when it happened. The heat had exacted its toll on him and he decided he could no longer hold it in and he squatted down to poop right on that front seat. And I cannot believe what's happening. I reached over and I grabbed him by the neck and I lifted him up all the while driving. And I'm telling him how bad a dog is. He's looking back at me like, you're right, I am a bad dog. And he's so ashamed of what he's done. And if you're keeping track here, I'm now driving 60 miles per hour in a 140 degree um, car, holding my dog in one hand. There's throw up in the back. There's poop in the front seat. And I can't stop to do a single thing, so I'm just making the best of it. And still somehow it gets worse. Because, guys, I'm not making this up. For some reason, my, my dog decided to just freak out in that moment and started kicking his legs right into the poop that he had just left in my seat. And now there's poop flying everywhere in this car. I'm shocked and appalled at what is happening. I throw my dog into the back seat. I kind of do my best to, to shovel and scoop the poop out the window while driving down the freeway. Weigh 60 miles per hour. I flip the AC back on um, to avoid any future issues. And fast forward 30 minutes later, I somehow miraculously made it into town on fumes. The car literally dies as I hit the parking lot. And what else am I going to do? I, I called Casey over to give her her brand new present. 
She walks all the way along the exterior of the car, and she's so excited. She loves it. She goes on and on about how I'm the best husband in the world. What, what a great gift. And then she asked me a difficult question. She said, do you have the keys so that I can get inside and take it for a drive? I said, you know what? Why don't, why don't we just let it charge for a little bit? That way you get the full experience tomorrow. It just needs to rest for a minute. It was shiny, and it was bright, and it was beautiful on the outside, but inside it was filled with mess and funk. And I tell that story because I think it just really accurately reflects the movie that we're exploring today. Um, the phrase of, of our summer has been this phrase, Barbenheimer. You have one movie, it's the movie Barbie, and it's plastic, and it's pink, and it's perfect on the outside, where every day is the best day, and then just one theater over, you have the second movie, which is Oppenheimer, which explores the, the messy inner depths of humanity as they face the threat of global annihilation. And all summer long, I've, I've been trying to like trade movies with Pastor Kyra, uh, but she told me that I couldn't pull off preaching in pink like she could. I still disagree with her, um, but thanks for that. So instead of a, a shiny, bright movie, I get the dark, messy, existential biopic, Oppenheimer. And for those of you who don't know, this, this movie follows the life of J. Robert Oppenheimer, played by Cillian Murphy. And, and Oppenheimer was a theoretical physicist known as the father of the atomic bomb because he was the director of the secret Manhattan Project that produced the world's first atomic bombs that would eventually be dropped on both Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Uh, the plot of the movie follows Oppenheimer through his life, starting with his, his just enchantment and hopefulness in the advances of science. He has this shiny external hope that perhaps science, through, through the study of atomic energy, could promise and, and create a peace that mankind has never known. But what ends up happening is that dream eventually gives way to a deep wrestling and, and troubled inner existential turmoil that, that he experiences having created such a destructive and deadly weapon. Uh, in, in other words, a project that he pitched to the external world is beautiful, bright, and promising. It ends up becoming a, a great source of internal regret and shame and conflict. So if you joined us today expecting light and fun and every day being the best day, I'm sorry to disappoint you because that was last week. This week, we are instead exploring the threat of human extinction. Liquid presents Oppenheimer. We imagine a future. And our imaginings horrify us. They won't fear it. Until they understand it. And they won't understand it. Until they've used it. take you only so far. I don't know if we can be trusted with such a weapon. But we have no choice. 
Uh, let me start by giving just a quick disclaimer about this movie. It is definitely not for everyone, so take caution before going and seeing it. There's, there's nudity, foul language, violence, and, and then some just really deep wrestling with dark themes as well. Uh, so it's rated R, so it's not appropriate for your kids. Um, even for your teenagers, I would, I'd just be careful and screen it ahead of time. You know it's appropriate for yourself and for your family, so just exercise some caution. And even for me, as I, as I watch it, there's these multiple just difficult and painful moments that I felt the, the need to, to look away. Yet despite this and despite its R rating, this movie has taken the world by storm. Oppenheimer has grossed $722 million worldwide. Um, By the time it leaves theaters, it will more than likely have become the highest grossing R-rated film of all time. It's already the highest grossing war movie of all time, and it has captured the cultural attention in our country like few other movies have. And that's maybe kind of asked this question, why has it just a a biopic that is about a scientist from 100 years ago created such a movement to the point that we're talking about it in our culture, to the point that we're talking about it in church today? And I think the answer is that this movie is so much more than just a biopic. It's actually the retelling of the human condition. It's a narrative not just of of history, but rather a narrative of humanity. Uh, And if I had to summarize what Oppenheimer teaches us about the human condition, it would be this. We are all seeking a way to control the world around us. We're all seeking a way to control the world around us. Um, For Oppenheimer, the the movie starts with his intense search for for meaning and for purpose and for control of the world around him. He he initially finds these things through his pursuit of science. And in his teens and his 20s, he he quickly becomes a world-renowned physicist exploring the complexities of quantum mechanics. Uh, Oppenheimer took this this pursuit of science so seriously that when pressed by a friend about whether or not he believed in God, his response is, well, I believe in the second law of thermodynamics and the quantum theory of life. And later in his 20s, in kind of a tongue-in-cheek remark, um, he said that Niels Bohr, the the most influential physicist of the time, was his god. And and though these comments were were meant to be kind of interpreted as jokes, I I think they do accurately reflect Oppenheimer's hope and, and trust that science could make sense of and even control the chaotic world around him. And as I watch the movie and and have researched his life, I I keep coming back to this warning from the scriptures. Um, It's a warning from from King David in, in Psalm 146. And here's what David wrote. He said, praise the Lord, my soul. Praise the Lord. I'll praise the Lord all my life. I'll sing praises to my God as long as I live. And then here's the warning in the very next verse. He says, so don't put your trust in princes. Some translations would say powerful people. Don't put your trust in human beings who cannot save. When their spirits depart, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. But instead, blessed are those whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. And I love that that David is writing this because it's a little bit self-deprecating because he is literally a king. He is the powerful person in that passage. And he's writing, don't trust princes or kings or the inventions of man. He's warning, don't put your trust in people like me because I'm, I'm gonna let you down. And that's exactly the lesson that, that Oppenheimer learns. As the the movie slowly unfolds, we find our main character becoming disenchanted with the the very science that he created. His God, science that that he reveres, 
just like the scriptures warn, leaves him wanting more. And the beginning of this disenchantment starts in 1939 when science makes a giant leap forward. A group of German physicists discovered nuclear fission when they bombarded uranium atoms with slow-moving neutrons. And in doing this, it, it created two things. First off, it, it created a release of an incredible amount of energy never before seen. And then the second thing that it did is it created the opportunity for a chain reaction where atoms would continue splitting apart from each other indefinitely and exponentially, essentially allowing for that release of in energy to just be continually and continually sustained. Which, by the way, if this is confusing and I've kind of lost you in all the science, um, welcome to the club. I just said those words and explained those words, and I still don't know what they mean. Um, in fact, after service, if someone can explain to me how nuclear fission works, that would be much appreciated because my head is, is spinning as I try to research and understand it. What I have picked up, though, and what I do know is this, is that the, the greatest technological discovery um, was nuclear fission because it was hypothesized that this energy release could be harnessed to, to solve all of the energy needs for the entire world in a clean and renewable way. It literally had the, the capacity to create world peace, so much so that the German scientists that discovered nuclear fission were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Are you catching it? What's happening? Science is promising this bright and shiny and hopeful future. Science can harness the power of the sun for the benefit of mankind. Except as you dig deeper past that shiny exterior promise, we know that isn't what happened at all. Only nine months after the discovery of nuclear fission, World War II broke out in Europe, and Nazi Germany realized that this new scientific discovery could be used to create a weapon of mass destruction, tipping the scale of power into their hands. Nuclear fission could create a bomb greater than anything the world had ever seen, big enough to destroy an entire city. And so Germany began their nuclear bomb development program. News of this program made its way over to the United States and immediately panic began to spread throughout the scientific community and eventually even to the American government. Uh, hearing that the Nazis were potentially years ahead in their research of the superweapon, the United States started their own program and recruited the young physicist Oppenheimer to be the director. And then Oppenheimer is teamed up with his no-nonsense military counterpart, General Groves, um, played by Matt Damon. And these two are then given the difficult task of calling together all the greatest scientific minds of the time to a small town in New Mexico called Los Alamos to develop a nuclear bomb before the Nazis are able to check out what happened. A secret laboratory. In the middle of nowhere. Keep everyone there until it's done. Why? If we don't let scientists bring their families, we'll never get the best. Build them a town. Why would I leave my family? I told you, you can bring your family. I'm not a soldier, Abby. A soldier? He's a general. I've got all the soldier I need. What can I tell them? You know isotopes, and you know explosives. But you can't tell us what you're doing. Why would we go to the middle of nowhere for who knows how long? Or a year or two or three. It's about unleashing the strong force. Before the Nazis do. God. How about because this is the most important thing to ever happen in the history of the world? This is the most important thing to happen in the history of the world. Have you, uh, have you noticed that we have a tendency to think that we are living in the most unique 
of times. Like there's this idea that we're always living in an unprecedented moment. And Oppenheimer grows and their colleagues are, are under the impression that there's never been a time as important as theirs. And, and can you blame them? They're staring down an evil, tyrannical leader that's trying to take over the entire world. Uh, their freedom, their, their way of life are being threatened. They're, their enemy potentially possesses a technology whose, whose full power the world can't even imagine. Life as they know it is on the, the brink of annihilation. And so the pitch and, and the argument used by Oppenheimer at the beginning of the Manhattan Project was that we have no choice but to act and to take control. Now we have to create this weapon because the times demand it of us. But as I've watched this movie and, and studied the political climate of World War II, it, it doesn't look all that dissimilar to today. Walk with me through this. For the, for the last 18 months, we've watched as Russia's invaded the sovereign nation of Ukraine. And if you just do a quick search of the internet of Putin and this invasion, you're just going to be immediately greeted with, with the media depicting the, the evils and the atrocities of this tyrannical leader as he's trying to take over the world. If you go even further east, there's another superpower, China, that's threatening to go to full war with anyone who doesn't recognize Taiwan as part of the People's Republic. Practically every war game and U.S. military strategist is, is focused on a future full-scale war with China. And I haven't even mentioned North Korea yet. Oh, and on top of that, all three of these countries have nuclear bomb arsenals, the sum of which could destroy the world dozens of times over. And then listen to this. Every year for the last 75 years, Bulletin Science and Security Board releases what they call a doomsday clock. And what this clock right here represents is how close we are to a nuclear holocaust. In other words, the closer the hand is to midnight, the closer we are to the extinction of the world by our own doing. In 2023, they released that we are now 90 seconds to midnight. It's the first time this clock has ever been measured in seconds rather than minutes. What that means is that today is the closest that we have ever been in all of human history to global annihilation. Are you catching it? Our times today are no different than those Oppenheimer faced. I think that's actually one of the reasons why this movie has resonated so deeply with our culture. It's, it's revealing an inner unrest and an uneasiness that we feel with the world around us. We feel out of control. There's, there's this concern, maybe even a fear in all of us as we look around at what's happening, as we see the wars and the worries and, and rumors about future wars, as we see fires in Hawaii and hurricanes hitting California, as we see the political unrest at the highest level of our government in a year that's not even an election year yet. We feel all of those things. We feel all of those turmoil. And what this film Oppenheimer does is it helps us make sense of the fears because they're the exact same that they've always been. And here's my hope is that maybe that gives you just a little bit of encouragement. There isn't something unprecedented about the time that we live in. The world has always been this way. Even Jesus, when he came down to earth, entered into the same sort of environment. Rome had already been for nearly a century conquering the entire world. Their goal was to occupy and enslave every known territory on the map. And if you talk about tyrannical leaders, each emperor seemed to get more evil than the one before it. Rome had technologies that no one else had at their time. They brought with them the first professional army in existence. They would show up to battle fully prepared with swords and armors to fight farmers holding pitchers. 
pitchforks. And they, again, were hell-bent on nothing less than conquering and subjugating the entire world. In fact, if you remember, Jesus was born right in the middle of a census, a census that was called by the nation of Rome that would be used to unfairly tax these enslaved territories. That is the world that Jesus enters into. It sounds remarkably familiar, doesn't it? But notice what Jesus does in that world. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't respond in fear. He responds in just this remarkable way. Listen to what he says in in Matthew 24. It says that Jesus said, watch out that no one deceives you. He says, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming that I'm the Messiah and will, name, will deceive many. And just like David, what Jesus is saying is, he's saying, don't put your trust in political leaders and in princes and powerful people and scientists. There are going to be people who promise to save you. There's going to be people that are going to promise to be your Messiah, the promise to settle your fears, but don't trust there. Don't put your trust there. And he goes on to say in verse 6, don't put your trust there because you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come because nations are going to rise against nations, kingdoms against kingdoms. There's going to be famines. There's going to be earthquakes all over the world. But all of these things are just the beginning of birth pains. Do you hear Jesus' words? He's saying the times are always the same. There's always another war. There's always another catastrophe. There's always another enemy around the corner. And then what he does for us is he gives us two applications. He says, if you are going to be my people, if you're going to call me your name, this is what I expect of you. And here's the applications that he gives us in that moment. He says to be careful where you put your trust. There are things all throughout our world that feel shiny and and promise control. Every political leader in existence will promise you the world. We're going to make America great again. We're going to build back better. And yet behind those slogans, there's an emptiness inside, isn't there? We, We know that these leaders can't fulfill everything that they're promising And Jesus and David, they're both warning us to be careful where we put our hope and where we put our trust. Science and and technology promise to solve human suffering. But if you look at the scorecard over the last hundred years, it's, it's created just as many problems as it's solved. So be careful where you put your trust. Liquid, when the when the fear of the world starts to to squeeze you tight, who are you gonna look to? Be careful where you put your trust. The second thing that I think Jesus is is teaching us here is is to not be alarmed. If you've placed your trust in Jesus, these global calamities cease to be something that surprise us and drive us to fear. Rather, they become something that we expect. We know that there will always be wars and rumors of wars. We know there will always be natural catastrophes. We know that there will always be another enemy, so we won't be alarmed because we know whose we are. And if you follow the storyline of Oppenheimer, that's exactly what happened. Jesus' warning comes true. The, the Nazis are defeated and the great enemy that they have all been racing against no longer exists. And you would think that that finally means peace, except that it doesn't. Watch what happens next.
thanks for convening a short notice. I can't believe it. Well, here we are. This is atomic test. The Russians have a bomb. We're supposed to be years ahead of them, but... What were you guys doing in Los Alamos? And how many people were in these, uh, open discussions? Too many compartmentalization was supposed to be the protocol. We were in a race against the Nazis. So now the race is against the Soviets. Not unless we started. Robert, they just fired a starting gun. Remember Jesus' words. There'll always be wars and rumors of wars. The nations will rise against nations, kingdoms against kingdoms. And that's exactly what happened. The Nazis are, are defeated. And immediately, there's another enemy to worry about. And this one's bigger and, and more dangerous than the last. Instead of Hitler's Germany, they're facing Stalin's Soviet Union. The starting gun that the clip refers to is the starting gun of the Cold War. And as a result of, of that historical conversation, there's an agreement that the bombs that were built to destroy Nagasaki and Hiroshima were no longer adequate enough because the enemy had the same kind of bomb. And so research began on a hydrogen bomb, a bomb with a capacity thousands of times greater than the ones Oppenheimer created. And what that shows us is that there's always another enemy out there to fear isn't there? And if you just tore through history, Nazi Germany, Soviet Union, North Korea, Russia, China, and the list can and will go on and on. Listen to this. Over 2,000 nuclear tests worldwide have been performed since Oppenheimer invented the world's first atomic bomb. There's now nine nuclear-armed states that hold over 12,700 nuclear weapons, and some of these weapons have been tested to a capacity of 38 100 times the size of the Hiroshima bomb. It's hard to even imagine what that means. So here's what that looks like in, in graph form. Uh, remember that the Hiroshima on its own destroyed an entire city. So imagine the, the destruction should this sort of weapon ever be unleashed on civilization. In, in fearful times, Jesus' warning to us is be careful of where we put our trust and to not be alarmed. In, in contrast, the world's response is to build a bigger bomb. The world's response is that we will be in control when we have more power than everyone else. That our fears will be resolved once we have the right political leader or the best scientific technology. The world is telling us that once we have the ability to defeat our enemies, then we won't have to worry anymore. And what Jesus is saying and what history teaches us is that just simply isn't true. Power doesn't ever absolve fear. If anything, it, it makes you complicit with it. And that right there is the main dilemma that the movie Oppenheimer is, is forcing its viewers to confront. You could say it like this. If you had the ultimate power in your hands, what would you do with it? And the culminating scene of the entire movie is the lead up to the Trinity test where Oppenheimer and Groves have to decide on whether they're going to hit the red button to detonate the world's first atomic bomb. They have in their hands more power than the world has ever seen. Let's listen into their conversation together. Well, we had a moment where it looked like the chain reaction from an atomic device might never stop. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Chances are near zero. Near zero. What do you want from theory alone? 
Zero would be nice. Zero would be nice. And yes, that's the, that's the question the movie wants you to answer. Would you press the red button? And I have to tell you, for, for Oppenheimer, it's an impossible choice that he faced. His ultimate decision to go through with the test and to deliver the two bombs to the U.S. military resulted in the death of a quarter of a million Japanese citizens between the two cities the bombs were dropped on. Um, the, mass, the vast majority of those deaths were for civilian deaths, many of which were innocent women and children. Um, on the other hand, in hindsight, some historians have estimated that perhaps millions of lives were saved by the decision, um, because by not invading Japan um, directly, World War II came to an abrupt end, and that potentially saved exponentially more than were killed by the bombs. Uh, the main theme of the movie shows that Oppenheimer was just riddled with this internal turmoil over his decision. So here's what I wanted to do is I wanted to turn the decision over to you. If you had the power to kill and to save, would you use it? Would you press the red button? Show of hands real quick. No, no, I'm just kidding. You don't have to do that for me. I won't make you do that. Instead, can you guys indulge me for a second? Um, some of you don't know this about me, uh, but my master's thesis was written on philosophy of ethics. Uh, in another life before coming to, to Liquid, I was able to teach ethics and comparative religion and philosophy at the collegiate level. And um, it's okay if you think that I'm a nerd, you were bound to find out sooner or later. Uh, but one of the things that I love to do when, when facing an impossible ethical dilemma is to simplify the problem into a little bit more of a bite-sized issue. So rather than asking, would you hit a red button that could potentially save millions, but could also ultimately result in the annihilation of the earth and the annihilation of the whole entire human race, as well as certain death of hundreds of thousands. Uh, maybe we'll just make it a little bit simpler with a thought experiment. You guys up for that? Um, so imagine for a second that you're just an innocent bystander standing next to a set of train tracks. You can hear the, that a train is coming, and to your surprise, when you look down the tracks, you see six people that have fallen down, and they're about to be hit by the train. Fortunately for you, sitting right next to you is a bright red button that will switch the train from track one to track two, and hitting the red button will save the six people. So you go to hit the red button, but just as you do, you see that there's one person person that's fallen onto track two, and now you have a much more difficult decision to make. You can do nothing and allow the six people to perish, or you can hit the red button, causing one person to die. How many of you would hit the red button? Okay, almost, almost all of us, which means the decision is pretty easy. We would make the same decision as Oppenheimer, save the millions of lives, sacrifice the quarter million, because the ends justify the means. But hold on, before we go launching nuclear warheads at each other, we might have just oversimplified the problem. So let's do another kind of thought experiment. In this scenario, almost everything is the same. Six people have fallen onto the track. The train is going to hit them unless you do something. However, this time, there isn't a red button. There isn't a second track. Instead, there's a very large man standing right next to the edge where the train is going to go by. And in this scenario, you are one of the greatest mathematical engineers in the entire world. Well done. Congratulations. You, you've done it. Uh, you're such a great mathematician, in fact, that you've calculated in your head that you can stop this train and six, save the six poor souls down track by simply pushing the large man onto the track. Same scenario, six lives saved, one life sacrificed. How many of you are ready to push the large man onto the track? 
Oh man, a lot less of us are willing to push the, the large man onto the tracks. It's a bit more complicated in it because we recognize that maybe the ends don't always justify the means. One more thought experiment together. In this one, you're, you're no longer on a train track, but rather you're in a hospital. And in this scenario, you're a world-renowned surgeon. Congratulations again. You've done it. You're caring for six patients. All six patients are perfectly healthy, except they are having one issue. They all have a vital failing organ and need a transplant within the next hour, or all six of your patients are going to die. Fortunately, you're the best surgeon in the world and have the ability to save all six. You know that you will have a 100% success rate on all six surgeries. You're just that good. Congratulations once more. But also, you know that there are not any available organs to be donated. In the back of your mind, though, you know that there is, however, one patient next door. He's recovering from a common cold, but otherwise entirely healthy. All of his organs are in great shape. You know that you can simply add a small amount of painless anesthesia medicine to his IV and then harvest his six organs for your six patients. How many of you guys are willing to save the six patients that way by harvesting the organs? None of us. Yeah, it's impossible to answer these questions, isn't it? And from the looks on some of your faces, you've just descended into existential crises right now, and so I'm sorry about that. But maybe what that means is that we weren't ever meant to hold that much power and that much control in our hands. And the more that I read the scriptures, the, the more that I'm convinced of this idea. In fact, when I look to Jesus and his example, I, I don't ever see him wielding power. I see him emptying himself of power. Here's how Paul in, in Philippians 2 says it. He says, in, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, he didn't, he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, what did he do? He made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he did what? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death as a cross. And watch what's happening. The one man who ever walked this earth that could perfectly wield power instead set his power down on our behalf. Jesus, even in his earthly body, contained more might than any red button that, that man could ever invent. He could have stepped in and stepped into earth and, and destroyed Rome. He could have annihilated his enemies, yet watch what he does instead. The entire story of the scriptures teaches that, that we, you and me, were enemies with God. But, but God didn't hit a red button out of fear. He didn't threaten us with his power to try to make us behave. No, the story of the Bible is that he instead came down in in human form. He emptied himself of his power and extended his love towards us. He showed us that we don't have to have trust in princes, in powers, or in, in, in uh, politicians. He showed us that we can instead trust in him. First John 4 tells us that it is Jesus's perfect love that casts out our fears. In other words, when we understand the, the height and the depth and the length and the width of God's love for us, we become secure in whose we are. And Jesus, he spoke over us. He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And when those words move from something we know up here in our brain to something we believe in here in our heart, that's when we can start to see the world in a different and in a new way. And liquid, lean in, lean in. 
I want this for you so desperately. I want you to know the love of your heavenly father so deeply that when the, the waves and the winds of this world come crashing down on you, you won't be moved. I, I want you to be so secure in the love of Jesus that there's no room in you for fears and worries about wars and rumors of wars. I want it for you, but it's, it's not something you just receive. It's, it's something you have to step into and grow into. It's something you commit to daily. In fact, when you walked in here, um, each one of you received a little card that looks like this. And what this card is, is an invitation to discover the love of Jesus on a daily basis in your life. Uh, as a church, we've launched a, a brand new app, and it's not a promo, it's not a guilt trip. It really is just an invitation to step into a daily encounter with God. As we've researched as a church spiritual growth and development, every major study points to the exact same reality. Nothing impacts your relationship with Jesus more than spending time with him daily. That means that a daily encounter with Jesus is more important than going to church, giving to church, or even serving at church. But don't stop doing those things because they're still important. What I'm saying is that if you want to find security in a chaotic world, if you want to be able to take on the fears that life throws at you, it doesn't start when those fears and those worries present themselves. It starts today by investing your relationship with Jesus and stepping into the love that he has for you. And that's what I love about our app. It's got this incredible daily feature where you can take a minute to, to express gratitude, where you can receive prayer while praying for others and explore scripture with one of our pastors. And literally five to 10 minutes a day for you can make the greatest impact on your walk with Jesus. That's the invitation that he's offering. And can I tell you why this is so important in my own life? It's because even, even though I don't have to make a decision every day on whether or not I'm going to press a bright red button to save millions or push a large man to his death on a runaway train, I do have to decide daily whether I'll trust God with the fears that I face. Will, will I trust him with, with my anxiety about my future? Will I trust him with the fears that I may not be a good enough dad to my daughter, Winter? Will I trust him with my financial securities? As I look at this economy that feels like it's becoming less and less stable, when my world starts to feel out of control around me, which, by the way, it does for all of us on a daily basis, I have to decide where I'm going to look to for my hope. In other words, what I've found in my own life is that the depth of my understanding and trust in God's love directly determines my capacity to respond to the fear around me. Do you know what taught me this? It was a 2013 Chevy Spark EV that was bright and shiny on the outside, but always seemed to have a slight smell of funk on the inside, no matter how many times I had it cleaned and detailed. I'll tell you what I mean. We got the car cleaned up um, after the dog poop incident. Casey loved her present, and it ended up being a great family car for us, um, although range anxiety was definitely still real. A few months down the road, we went to church one day, and we came up after service um, to the parking lot, and I couldn't find the car. Uh, we hit the panic button and ran around the parking lot looking for it to, to no avail. We hit the panic button again, and as we listened to the silence, the panic and the pit in my stomach began to rise. Reality was beginning to set in that our car had been stolen. Immediately, the, the anger, the frustration, the fear began to build up inside of me. 
How are we going to survive this? How are we going to pay for this? What are we going to do without a vehicle? How could someone do this to me? The, the fear turned to anger and it started to rise inside of me as I called the police frantically. I called our security team to check the tape so that I could catch the person. And I started running through my mind all the things that I would say to that person once I finally did catch them. I'm just working myself up. And do you know what those emotions reveal to me? They reveal to me that I've forgotten Jesus and David's words that I had placed my trust in a shiny thing. And as Casey watched me pacing back and forth, probably swearing, yelling, and going on, she came over to me gently and placed her arm on my shoulder. And she reminded me that everything was going to be okay and that we would figure this out together. And she said something that I would never forget. She said right there in that moment, I think we need to pray for the person who stole our car. And without asking, she kind of forcefully took my hands in hers, and then she prayed the most beautiful prayer. She started off by saying, God, we shouldn't feel alarmed when our world feels out of control, because you're always in control. And then she started to pray for the person that stole our car. She prayed that they would receive a blessing in their life, and I'm like, what are you doing? that in the middle of whatever they were going through, that they would be able to find Jesus. And then she said, amen. And I went to let go of her hands so that I could get back to my existential crisis. Except she grabbed my hands even tighter. And she squeezed them like, okay, now it's your turn. I was like, no, 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 I'm good. I I got to talk to the police and the insurance. Then she squeezed them again. She wasn't going to let me get away with it. So I started praying. I said, God, I, I pray for the person that stole my car that he would stub his toe tomorrow morning when he wakes up. No, no, I'm just kidding. I did what my wife and what Jesus told me to do. I prayed for an enemy that had persecuted me. I remember opening my eyes after that prayer and something inside of me had shifted. It wasn't that my situation had changed. The car was still definitely stolen. The financial pain that this was going to cause hadn't been resolved. The circumstances of the world around me were still outside of my control. What had changed, though, was that I'd been reminded of the perfect love of God. And when you experience that kind of love, there just isn't room for fear. Liquid each day, we're going to be faced. We're faced with our world that's just outside of our control. We're gonna encounter fears and worries and anxieties. In those moments, where will you decide to put your trust? Jesus is extending his hand to you. He's inviting you into this incredible love that he has for you and that love casts out all fear. Will you place your trust there? Let me pray for us. Lord, uh, Thank you that in the midst of the chaos and the brokenness and the pain and the destruction of our world and all of the fears that we see around us, that you are still in control. Um, We ask that we wouldn't put our hope in the things of this world, but rather we would put our hope in you. Um, We know we aren't going to be faced with the red button decision today, but we are going to be faced today with the fears and the worries that sit in front of us in those moments. Lord, remind us of your love Let us sit in your love so that all of those fears will be cast out as you promise. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 
thank you for joining us today. If you want to check out Liquid Church for a weekend service, small group, outreach, or clean water trip, you can find out more about us online at liquidchurch.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, go ahead and subscribe or share it with your friends. Thanks again for listening.